electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now in Fast, the Bears getting burned. The Dow posting its best day in over a month, getting within a stone's throw of the 35,000 mark for the first time in more than a year. All three major averages at their highest levels since last April. So is it time yet for the skeptics to start changing their tunes? Plus, the ultimate bull bear debate on Tesla shares up nearly 140% this year at their highest level since last September. But with earnings less than a day away, has the stock come too far too fast? And later, a new all-time high for Microsoft bank stocks getting a big boost and why a once-hot retail trade caught the eye of one of our traders, and not in a good way. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Dan Nathan, Guy Dami, and a couple of guest traders. Danny Moses of Big Short fame. He's the founder of Moses Ventures. And Cameron Dawson, CIO of New Edge Wealth. Welcome to you both. We start off with the market melt-up on Wall Street. Stocks surging to their highest levels in over a year. The Dow up for a seventh straight day. It's longest winning streak since March of 2021. Tech stocks leading the charge, the sector the biggest gainer in the day, and now up 47% since January. Check out this chart. Tech valuations closing in on record highs. Forward PEs are at levels not seen since December 2021, when the world and the market was a very different place. So with stocks rallying and tech valuations nearing record levels, when will the bears throw in the towel? And I ask this in the company tonight. Basically, it's a bear den on the desk tonight. So we're going to have this conversation because it's a good one to have. When do you say you got to trade the market you have? When do you say I'm being too dogmatic about my stance and my predictions as to what is going to happen? Guy, I'll start off with you. Well, it's great to have Cameron and Danny here. There's, we're sort of safety in numbers, I guess, tonight. But <laughs> I've been on the bear camp in the broader market for quite some time, incorrectly, since probably December of last year when this whole thing started. But, you know, valuations were stretched then, or even more so now. And you think about where the world was December of 2021-ish. I mean, interest rates were so effectively zero, the Fed was just going to start to raise interest rates in March. 500 basis points later, here we are. And again, the market's going on its merry way. I'm hard-pressed to believe after what's going to be 525 basis points of hikes over the course of a year and a half, there's nothing to it. There's nothing to worry about. There are no ramifications. Nothing is broken, and the market goes on its merry way. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Danny? People came into the year, short technology, long energy and financials, somewhat defensive, as was I. And over a period of time, the chase began. When the tech stocks started to run, people forgot about energy and financials, obviously, until the March blowup of some of the biggest banks in the country. I think about two big events that happened in the first half of the year. The first one, obviously, was... Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate and all the banks blowing up. What happened as a result of that that 95% of people didn't see coming was the Fed, Treasury, basically guaranteed all deposits going forward, in my opinion. That's what they did, and they injected half a trillion dollars into the market. The second thing that happened was the debt ceiling crisis that happened. What happened as, as a result of that? We have an unlimited debt ceiling now through January 2025. Those I did not have on my bingo card as a result of that. That being said, as we sit here today, S&P earnings have gone down in 2023, as we've, since we've started the year. And in 2024, they've gone down since we started the year. So it's, I'm hard-pressed to, quote, chase the market here. That being said, I'm sure we'll talk about it later. There are names you can own 
and still be bearish on the overall market. Right. And that's sort of the stance that you take, Cameron. You're finding some pockets where you do want to invest, but overall you're a little bit cautious. Yeah. And what we've learned this year is that valuations don't matter when everybody's underweight or everybody's short and bearish already, which just means that people get drawn into the market kind of regardless of what valuations are. But now if we look at where positioning stands, we're at a point where you've seen huge inflows into tech. You're now about 75% of the way from going deeply underweight to very overweight. So you still have a little bit of room to run to get to that max overweight position. And once you get there, that's probably when valuations start to matter. And that's why if we're looking at positioning today, we're saying, we'd rather buy names that are cheaper, that equal weight index, for example, trading at about in line with average versus growth trading well above average. So I think valuation discipline makes a lot of sense if you're looking out two, three years. But if you're only looking in the next couple of weeks, the best trends are in those growth growth names. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no doubt about that. And I think, though, like really the question is, what's the pull forward, right? And so if we want to talk about valuations, like I'm looking at, at this is facts that they track, you know, the forward 12-month PE of the S&P 500 near 19 times. That's above the five-year average of 18.6, above the 10-year average of 17.4. And Danny just started this conversation by talking about S&P earnings expectations. They are still up, I think, expected to be up 2% year over year, but they're down from where they were massively a year ago or something like that. So I say to myself here, you know, what are the names that are driving all this performance? We know that the seven stocks make up 26% of the S&P 500. We know that they are a disproportionate amount of the expected earnings growth for that index that I just told you is trading at historically high levels. And then if you think of all the excitement in and around those names, they are pulling forward a lot of excitement around something that might or might not materialize in the not so distant future. So to your point, Cameron, these are great trends to invest in. This is what investing in technology is all about. And that is, I think, the history of all of our careers in the markets over the last, let's say, 25 or 30 years. But sometimes when it feels like a feeding frenzy, it's not exactly a great time to kind of jump in the pool, if you will. We're not talking about, though, Pets.com here. We're not talking about okay, but Mel, all right, we're talking so I, companies right. that were already large okay, and profitable. Okay, okay, we are. Okay, but Microsoft came into today. It was a $2.5 trillion market cap company. They put out a press release at 11.30 about right. a part of, of, of a business that we know very well. This is a company that has gained more than 40% on the year, and we know why it has been rallying this year. And they're talking about a product that might get to $10 billion in sales. The stock rallied 130 billion dollars in market capitalization on that. We don't know what the cost of compute is for that service that they're offering to enterprise clients for $30 a seat. We don't know what the cost of the data centers are going to be, the demand for those sorts of things. Those revenues that might or might not come might come at really crappy margins. You know what I'm saying? So to me, I just think that Microsoft at 33 times, and I know we're going to do it in the e-block, sorry, Sandy, but we like, this is really important <laughs> stuff here because this is the thing that market participants are jumping into right now, and if we go back to the S&P and where it's trading and what expected earnings growth are, if you look at those seven stocks, if you take them out, the rest of the S&P is not expected to grow. The areas that Danny talked about that everyone came in really defensively positioned are not going to have a great year right now. I would just add that, just to go back to the start of the year, we came to the year and I believe Fed funds were predicting a rate cut at this next meeting. We've now pushed that out six months. It kind of feels like everything's been pushed out six months from here, right? So economic data was better than expected on the margin. There is no question about it. But I think all we've done now is push this out six months from now. I'm not necessarily calling for a recession to happen or trying to time it, you know, per se. But these rates being this high for this long, you're starting to see an impact. I know we're going to talk about the banks and consumer credit. 
but it's happening, and, and, and the consumer is getting stretched here. So you hold on basically to a, sh- a, a negative view of the market. Are you short the markets currently? I'm short the S&P, yes. Have you been short the S&P throughout the entire year? No, I've not been short okay. throughout the entire okay. year. Recently, got re-engaged at these levels. And if I'm wrong, and maybe I'm wrong by a couple percent, I feel like. At what point, because at the start of the year, you're more defensive, right? At what point do you, did you say, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna walk away from this, I'm going to be flat, and I'm going to wait for my opportunity? When stocks stop trading on fundamentals, which I believe yeah. what Dan's talking about has happened to a degree, mm-hmm. you can't really short a market that doesn't trade on fundamentals because there is no, there is no limit to where it can go. So a little bit scary. You know, we talk about $150 billion over the course of a couple of days. It's not a big deal. A year and a half, two years ago, how many companies had a market cap of $150 billion in the first place? And now companies seemingly add that over the course of a trading day or so. We don't even bat an eye. And it's not on anything necessarily fundamental to Dan's point. It's all on money flows and the fact that they're probably just an absence of sellers right now. question is, what's the catalyst for that? And I think valuation will be that at a certain point, but you can never really trade on the back of valuation. But there's something coming, and I do think, you know, Sheila Bear's going to come on. I think it's going to manifest itself in another one of these regional banks or maybe a credit crunch cycle, whatever, rearing its ugly head. Then it starts to build on itself. But to Danny's point, I mean, the Fed stepping in and effectively backstopping all deposits, yeah, doesn't that sort of thing. eliminate the, the, you know, risk of another big failure that we've seen it eliminates that risk, but uh-huh. it doesn't eliminate credit risks that are clearly going to be out there. I mean, you think about what's, again, over the last now 18 months, what we've, we've raised 500 base points, soon to be 525, historic in the amount and the duration with which we've done it. People think somehow the economy can weather that storm, and it has. The lag effect clearly has lasted longer than I thought, but it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. There's an inevitability to all of this. Can I ask you guys about the possibility that there's an echo chamber going on. You guys 100%. are on a, on a podcast that everybody knows. Lots of lots of reviewers, you three are together. You're talking about your bearish views all the time. And it happens also on the bullish side, I might add. It's not just you guys. It's, it's who you keep company with. You tend to gravitate towards you know, people who you share views with. Are you concerned that your view of the market, your view of the world right now at this moment is really shape birds of a feather flock exactly. yeah no i'll jump in quickly i think that's an extraordinarily fair point you bring up and, and and we have people on with the counter view we listen to him i think danny will say this i don't want to speak for him but he embraces when people challenge his positions and he can talk about that because you do want to hear the other side and i'm not i think there is a fine line between being dogmatic and having a strong opinion and probably right on the cusp of it but what I'm seeing going on right now in terms of the economy, in terms of interest rates, in terms of the moves in the bond market, currency market, the gold market, which Danny will talk about, it all, to me, lends itself to an equity market that's overvalued. Yeah, and here's another thing, okay? It's absolutely laughable because I spent all of 2022 watching almost, you know, 90% of the strategists and pundits defending their bullish view the whole way down. And it wasn't even that the S&P only closed down 20%. A lot of stocks that a lot of people who watch this show lost 75% of their value. And those people are making all the stupidest arguments about why it's going to be, you know what I mean, like why you continue to hang on in this and whatever. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I think it's a valuable, it, it, it serves as a valuable service because, you know, I've been on this network for 14 years and I always find it really interesting that, you know, a lot of folks here, they come on here and they, do, they can talk out of the, both sides of their mouth and you push them and a lot of the great journalists on here push them. At least I'm here every day and I'm talking about it, I'm giving up, I'm coming with new stuff, you know what I mean? And, and, and I think that transparency is kind of the only way to do it, but I'm not going to change my mind every other day. 
Right. Listen, part of it is having a front row seat for the financial crisis in 2007 and 8. It's hard to unsee everything that happened. And I really go out of my way to try to teach people and help people. And we pitch longs on the podcast from time to time. But once you see something like that happen, when you think about the bank crisis in mid-March, 99% of people had no idea what that was. We were talking about guaranteed, go guaranteed government securities that were getting marked down. These weren't these weren't subprime mortgage bonds, right? And that's a scary prospect. So there are things like that occurring right now that no one's really wants to pay attention to. I see them I try to help people, but it's not manifesting itself right now in the markets, but I believe over time it will. Let's get to our chart of the day because this is something that you guys both highlighted earlier on our call. Uh, take a look at the dollar taking a sharp move lower against major currencies this month. Um, Cameron, you highlighted the move in the dollar. This is something you're watching. Yeah, it's really important because it will drive market leadership. One of the things that a weak dollar does is it typically is supported of value stocks, international stocks, and commodities. And if we have higher commodities, of course, that could exacerbate some of these inflation drivers. So we have to watch it very closely. If it breaks below 99, that's where we think 96 is even in play. But if it holds that, then maybe we have this sideways chop. So the dollar is all important in where market leadership will go through the end of the year. Yeah, you're focused on dollar yen specifically in the carry trade? Yes, because you think about the new Bank of Japan governor that's come in, right? Look at the 2022 at the very end. Japan's been effectively having something called yield curve control, where they've been maintaining the 10-year yields between 25 and 50 basis points. Where did it go that day they did it? Right up to 50 basis points, and it's been staying there. And I'm watching because the yen carry trade has been a big source of liquidity in the market for years, and it's been short yen, long dollar. And the rate differential, they're finally experiencing inflation in Japan, which is a good thing. And that's now, I believe, potentially unwinding. And those are the type of things that I see happening underneath the surface that I think the same way people didn't see this Silicon Valley thing happening could be one of these things you wake up one day and there's, and there's a currency crisis on our hands. Yeah, Mel, and this is a great point about like challenging your views a little bit. And I kind of like, you know, I was out all last week and I looked at the move in the dollar and I was like, that is a substantial move. Yeah. And, and you know what I mean? And so challenging my, let's say my bearish view and everything we just talked about, the S&P 500 earnings and everything like that, you think about how much of a potential tailwind this is for S&P earnings. What does that mean? So Cameron, I would almost push it back to you. It's like, to me, is this the sort of thing where we were really worried when the Dixie, the U.S dollar index was 115 like nine, 10 months ago or something like that. But now it's at 100 here. Is this the sort of thing that might kind of buoy S&P earnings like if we were to have a weak dollar? And is there a scenario where maybe the dollar falling out of bed is, doesn't mean something horrible for the U.S. economy? No, it doesn't have to mean something horrible, but it does have to mean where we see the leadership within the global markets. So we do know that there are quite a few sectors within the U.S. markets that are very negatively correlated to the dollar, a lot of them being consumer names because they derive most of their earnings or a good portion of their earnings from overseas. So as we start to see a weaker dollar, it usually helps benefit those consumer names, as well as things like materials and energy, which really have been left for dead all this year. So then if we think then about the, the other implication on liquidity, I think the other thing interesting on Japan is that the Bank of Japan has expanded its balance sheet really materially. And it actually, the low in the balance sheet coincides with the low in the market in October. So if they back off from doing yield curve control, and not to out-wonk you, Danny, if they back <laughs> off from doing that, the challenge we have is that is actually a drain of liquidity from global markets. I think that's a key watch item as we move into 24. All right, uh, let's get to Carvana here. we got a market flash. Shares moving lower in the after-hour session. Pippa Stevens got the details. Pippa. Hey, Melissa. Well, Carvana is dropping down at 9% after the company bumped up its second quarter results. 
announcing it will release earnings tomorrow morning before the market opens with the conference call at 8 a.m. Eastern. The used car retailer was initially slated to report on August 3rd. That stock's been on a tear this year, up more than 700 percent, but dropping 9 percent here in extended trading. Melissa. Thank you, Pippa Stevens. We got the perfect person on the desk tonight. Uh, Danny <laughs> Moses. <laughs> I was unaware that was happening, but I've, if I were to guess, I would say maybe there's an equity offering coming, so they want to put the earnings out now. That's just complete speculation on my part. You know, yes, the stock's up a lot from the lows, but it's down, I'm guessing, what, 90% from, from its highs, and I don't think they're out of the woods by any means, but I wait to see what this news is going to be. Yeah. If memory serves... Mm. Which I, for me, it often, it does. often does. I mean, I think Danny was here in the fall, early winter of 2021. This was, I think, a $285 stock. He actually talked about it as one of his top short ideas. Stock went from 350 to 3. Now, it's bounced significantly to your point, but it's still an extraordinarily troubled company. But we've seen bounces along the way. If you look at this chart over the last couple months, it looks extraordinary. You look at it over the last couple of years, it's a beaten down, probably, you know, a business that's probably going out of out of business. So listen to Danny on this one, folks, for sure. It's not just Carvana that's rallied. A lot of other names have rallied that I think aren't high quality. And I don't know what everyone's waiting for these companies. I'd be raising equity quickly. As soon as you can. As soon as yeah. you can. So we'll see if that's the trend here. All right, coming up, charge up and ready to go. Our Tesla bulls and bears are about to lock horns, and you won't want to miss this one. The future of the EV maker ahead. But first, former FDIC chair Sheila Bear is joining us to dig into the latest bank earnings, why she believes the stock's Maybe running too far too fast. Her thoughts on rates, regionals, and much more. Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money in two. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. A strong day for bank and brokerage stocks. Charles Schwab, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, BNY Mellon, all rallying after posting earnings beats. The KRE and KBE at their highest levels since March. So has a recently beaten down sector put the worst behind it? Let's bring in Sheila Bear, who served as FDIC chair during the 2008 financial crisis. Sheila, great to have you with us. Uh, the stocks are telling us that we've emerged unscathed, right. that there aren't any more repercussions from what we witnessed in March. Is that the right message? Um, well, I, I hope that's true, but I can't be sure that's true. And I think if people make, build that into their expectations, they'll probably be disappointed. No, I think there's going to be 
more bank failures. I think there are bank, you know, banks fail. We've got, you know, <laughs> a lot of them out there. And uh, so people should get excited about that. If they're, they, if they're below the deposit insurance levels, they're fine. And if uh, they're large depositors, they should understand what their bank's about and how risky their bank is. I know the Congress, the uh, government has tried to imply that all these deposits are guaranteed. They really don't have the legal authority to do that. But um, the vast majority of the banks are fine, are gonna weather this. But yeah, there's commercial real estate loans, there's a recession risk, there's a lot of uh, headwinds out there. And for the regional and community banks, the inverted yield curve, if that continues, <laughs> it's gonna become a real problem for them, I think. Health of the consumer, that's been a story. Yep. All the bank CEOs talk about Brian Moynihan, every, it's always great. Yeah, you yeah, know, you, yeah. I, and I listen, it's not just him, they all do it. But I don't think there's ever been an environment where they haven't said that. Yeah. I don't think it's great. What do you think? No, I don't think it's great either. We're always trying to, you know, get, get the consumer to borrow more, lever up, keep buying. And that's, that's not the kind of growth sustainable. There's finally been some real wage growth. It's been negative since May, but now we've seen positive wage growth. That's great. They needed to catch up. So just don't, you know, based on that data to say everything's wonderful to the consumer is just not accurate. Uh, you know, d consumer debt's up, delinquencies are up, savings rates are down. Um, that should be, those are trend lines that are not great. So no, I don't think we should be relying on the consumer uh, to keep, you know, fueling this. To the extent real wage growth does support demand as borrowing costs goes up, that's a positive, that's sustainable, but we don't know if that's going to be uh, be consistent. Hopefully inflation is, is on the downward trajectory now, which will support real wage growth, but we don't know that for sure. We opened the show with a conversation about being bearish yeah. in a market that rallies. And it, it sounds, Sheila, like you're sort of bearish on the banking sector. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to make you pick yeah. stocks or anything like that. But it does sound like you think that there are yeah. some real worries about the sector that aren't not necessarily being priced well, in right I, now. I, I'm the kind of person who always wants to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. So I, yeah, I do think there's some real issues. And you know, the, the Fed stress test. I published a, an op-ed on this last week. The Fed's the, the true nightmare scenario is that inflation persists. You know, interest rates have to stay high. We go into a recession, so they've got credit losses, but they're also dealing with the impact of, of high interest rates. And that's the nightmare scenario we need to worry about. That was not stressed in the Fed's stress test. So we really need to, they are running more stress now. I don't know if they're gonna be public or not, but those are the scenarios they need to look at. We need to be prepared. I'm not saying that's gonna happen. I think it's plausible it might happen. And that's the whole idea of a stress test, to think of those plausible worst case scenarios and make sure the banks can withstand those conditions. Government agencies were obviously caught off guard by what happened in March with Silicon Valley Bank and yeah. the other banks. Yeah. Do you think they now have a better grip? You think they're in tune right yeah, now? Yeah, I, I do. I think, you know, it's funny. They were, they were focused on interest rate risk, but more from an earnings perspective than, you know, these unrealized losses. If you had to actually sell these super safe government securities, what was going to happen? So. I think they are uh, focused on that now. I worry there will be an overreaction because, as I said then and I'm saying now, the vast majority of the regional community banks are fine. They're healthy. We need them to lend. They're important uh, providers of credit to small and medium-sized businesses. So I do think there's a risk of overreaction. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I, think, I think they can weather it. One thing that the regulators haven't done that they should is these liquidity tests. So we talk about these capital stress tests. Those are the big public headline. The liquidity tests continue to assume that government securities, even if they are deeply underwater, even if you can't sell them except for significant losses, they're treated as highly liquid in determining whether a bank's liquid or not. That was a, you know, a, a big problem with the Silicon Valley. People said, oh, they should have been had these liquidity stress tests the way the big banks do. 
it wouldn't have caught it because it treats government securities as super safe for both capital and liquidity purposes. Well, that in, that's just wrong. The, the current stress tests don't have a time element. I mean, they, they, they allow right. the banks to work things out they over what, the course of nine quarters or something yeah, like that. Yes, it, they it's do. It's not like yeah. a quick change in the environment yeah. that can trigger all these stresses. Yeah, well, then, no, that's true. And I think, you know, the, the inverted yield curve, I think, is, 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 should not be underestimated as a, as a challenge for banks. And that they assume that with their that that the, the immediate it reinverts <laughs> within a couple of months, which is just not you know normalizes in a couple of months, which is just not the case. This if we have a problem, it's going to be more like the SNL days, where banks can't find loans and investments to match to cover their deposit costs. Deposits costs are going up, so they start doing really stupid things, taking big risks to get high yielding investments or loans. And then you, you know, what becomes liquidity becomes credit, and you've got a banking crisis that also is not good for the economy. So again, I think that's what, if we need to worry about something, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if we need to prepare for something, that's really the bad scenario that people need to be alert to right now. I think. Sheila, thanks for coming by. Yeah, my pleasure. Great thanks. to see you, Sheila Bear. Nice Dan, um, I don't think it's a surprise where you stand on the bank. No, I, I mean, listen, you know, I, I think the results, you know, from the big money centers are, were, were pretty good. I don't think people were particularly bearish on them, despite, you know, some of the things that Sheila just mentioned about the yield curve and, and, and the like here. And, and they were clearly beneficiaries from a deposit standpoint, which, you know, um, from the regional banking crisis here. And if you look at a day like today and look at a, a stock like Schwab, there was a lot of skepticism for months now, um, you know, to see that stock rally the way it did, to look at the KRE, the regional banking index. Um, at a technical level. I mean, if we're just trading here, you started off by talking about trading the market that we have. If you think that we are going back to the all-time highs in the S&P 500, the NASDAQ has a chance of getting back to its prior highs about 10% away, then you want to start finding some laggards where the stories are maybe getting incrementally better. And that regional banking, it it might be, because we've all been saying there's other shoes to drop. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen to the yield curve. But technically, those things look okay. And people can only buy so much of the same stuff that they've been buying for the last six to nine months. And I think we don't have a clear picture on the regional banks yet because they start reporting effectively tonight with Western Alliance and through the rest of this week. So this is going to be the real test of the true trends of what's happening because we know the big banks were the beneficiaries. But at the end of the day, if this is a soft landing and we really believe in it, you really want the banks to participate because they are cyclical, economically sensitive parts of the market. And so we do think that having banks show better performance is the best indicator that we are in fact truly having a soft landing that can persist versus just a breather in the economy mm-hmm. and maybe a recession risk for 24. And moving Charles Schwab was big. Did you see yeah. the CEO interview? I missed it. Today? I'm sure it was Walt, fantastic. Walt was saying people are back in the markets. Yeah, they are. percent more buys and sells, uh, you know, on the platform. Schwab weathered the storm without yeah. question. They were in the crosshairs for about a week and a half or mm-hmm. so, and they got through it. Great. It's a wonderful, it's, it's a great institution without question. But, you know, that's not Sheila E. talking about the banks. That's Sheila Baird talking about the banks, just to be clear. And she's sort of amplifying some of the things we've been saying for a while. None of us hope this happens. But again, she talked about the consumer. I mean, everybody wants to say they're in great shape. They'll always spend. Should they be spending? I mean, credit card debt's north of a trillion dollars now. So the warning signs are clearly there for the banks and for the economy. Just the market doesn't want to listen right now. All right, there's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. In reverse, Lockheed Martin unable to hold on to a morning rally after a strong earnings beat. So what has investors changing their minds? The details next. Plus, the battle over Tesla. Bulls and bears sparring over where the EV maker is headed next. 
Everything you need to know ahead of tomorrow's big earnings report. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Lockheed Martin, a buzzkill in today's rally. Defense stock giving up early gains, ending the day down more than 3%. The move coming despite an earnings and revenue beat in the latest quarter. The war in Ukraine driving sales of Lockheed's F-35 combat jet and missile defense systems. Um, terrible price action in response to this earnings guy. Initial, initially a very good price, right. but the reversal today was something we want to talk about. It traded three times normal volume. We didn't test the all-time high, which I think was north of 500, but had a pretty significant move higher. They guided higher for the year. This is a stock with that guidance that's trading below market multiple, trading about 17 times, which is in line a little cheap to them historically where Lockheed trades. I don't know if it was just rotation out of the space into some of these high flyers, but it's something you absolutely want to watch. When people start dis devaluing names like this and flying into, flocking into some of these high growth names, that's a sign as well. I don't think there's anything wrong with Lockheed here. I think the stock is fine. I think the company's fine. This earnings release was fantastic. But the price action to me speaks about what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, this euphoria in other sectors. This just shows that there's no demand for defensives because a name like Lockheed to beat and raise and to sell off on it just shows you that people want sensitivity to the economic cycle. They want the potential for greater upside. And Lockheed is the most counter cyclical name that you could own within a cyclical sector like the industrials. But it is getting cheap. It's trading at about a 17 percent discount to the market. To put that into context, you go back to the relative discount low, which was during sequestration. It got down to about a 30 percent discount. So it could get cheaper. But the point is, we're still in a very strong defense spending environment. So this would be a cheap way to add defensiveness to portfolios. Guy, did they not mention AI on the call? Did they, they did not. All they well, there you go. There's, there, there's your answer. So LMT.AI, <laughs> and this well, is 800 bucks. But hold on. But I guarantee you that Lockheed Market, uh, Lockheed, they spend you know millions and millions of dollars on machine learning. And, uh, like, 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 They're probably like, at the forefront. Right. And, and so it's just kind of funny in, in a way. It's embedded into their business. It's embedded innovation right. is what they do. So How do drones fly? Yeah, well, AI. exactly. Exactly. Coming up, the moment you've been waiting for. Mm. The EV wars are heating up out there. And right here on this very desk, we've got bulls, we've got bears. So is Tesla's future all green lights or is its battery about to run out? The big debate is next. Plus, it's going to cost a pretty penny to talk to Microsoft's new chatbot. The details and the huge stock reaction straight ahead. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. A sea of green on Wall Street as major markets notch another set of highs for the year. The Dow surging past its December highs and notching its highest close since last April. It and the S&P now just 5% from their all-time highs. The Nasdaq also rising today. That index up more than 42% from October lows. Apple locking in another record high close today. But a couple stocks moving lower in the after hours. J.B. Hunt posting a top and bottom line miss for its latest quarter. Interactive brokers also dropping after an earnings miss. And Omnicom down after missing on revenue. 
Let's get to Tesla now, what we've all been waiting for. The EV maker set to report quarterly results after the bell tomorrow. The stock is up more than 130% already in 2023. But in the latest challenge for the company, Senator Elizabeth Warren is asking the SEC to look into Elon Musk's potential conflicts of interest with Tesla and Twitter. Joining us now is Fast Money friend and longtime Tesla bull, Gene Munster, managing partner of Deepwater Asset Management. Gene, I have to warn you. We've got some bears specifically on Tesla on this desk tonight, so I hope good. you don't feel outnumbered by I don't feel <laughs> us good, bringing Melissa. you into the fold here. Um, but, but Leia, what, what are we expecting for the quarter, um, and, and how is Tesla going to justify where it's at right now stock-wise? So there's the near term, which is tomorrow, and then there's the long term. And as far as the near term, I don't know if the stock is going to be up or down after they report their earnings. Uh, the key topic, obviously, for earnings is going to be auto gross margins, X credits. In the March quarter, the street was looking for 20%. They missed it. They hit 19%. The street's looking for 18 this quarter. I suspect it's going to be light, somewhere between 17 and 18%. I don't think that's going to be an issue for the stock, ultimately, because I think the commentary from the CFO is going to be to expect improving gross margins throughout the back half of the year. And so I just kind of... Uh, Put that as the starting point. I think all systems go when it comes to improving margins, despite what probably is going to be a miss for June. The outlook is positive. But I would love for the conversation, the debate to be focused on the long term. So I think that's what's more important, Melissa. And ultimately, I think the long term, if we're going to boil the question down, it's not about auto gross margins, X credits. The long term question is this. Can Tesla get to 10 or 20 percent market share of where eventually EVs will be 100 percent? And I will uh, uh, make the case that if their goal is for 20% share, if they do 10% share in a decade, so it's a long time, but 10% in a decade, that's a $1.1 trillion business. Uh, they are going to do $130 billion in revenue this year. If you're of the camp that traditional auto is going to catch up to Tesla, then I'd love to have a debate around that topic. Hey, Gene, it's Dan. And, and, and again, I, I think you're a great long-term thinker. I, I'm not, especially. I've been a bad short-term thinker on this one of late. But it's interesting when you think about the short-term right here. Into last quarter, the stock had sold off 16%. They missed on gross margins. The stock sold off the next day 10%. It has since rallied since bottoming out post-earnings 100%. It's gained $450 billion in market capitalization since it was at 150 in the days after earnings. So when you think about the fact that they're likely to come in a 17% gross margin, who knows, whatever they say on the call, whether that's true or not, whether they're bottoming out or not, there is a price war going on right now. And so to me, in the history of tech, and you and I have talked about this a lot over the last 25 years, when you have declining margins like this in, in, a, in a market like this where you know there's just aggressive pricing, the more units they sell, it's worse for the margin here. So I, I'm just curious, like, how do you square like the near term right now with your very positive long-term vision? Because the, the the fundamentals don't seem to be improving quarter over quarter. So I would square it up by saying I think margins are going to improve in the back half of the year. And if I'm wrong by a quarter, it's going to likely improve in 2024. And the reason is that they are ramping production at Austin, their 4680 battery, which has been a drag on margins. We've talked about lithium prices going down. That benefits Tesla more than it benefits Ford and Giga uh, Berlin. And so that's my base case. Agree that facts are the facts. Margins have been down. But I think that they will rally back here, back half of this year into next year. And as far as the margins and the impact, uh, I think this is a critical topic. 
which is traditional auto, is getting smoked right now when it comes to EVs. Ford, they break it out. They lose 40% in their EV division. Polestar, half owned by Volvo, 45%. Tesla makes about 15% operating margin. My case is this. What you just described, Dan, that's going to be the world of traditional auto. I think they're going to have continue to have struggles to improve those margins because it's not just about ramping production. They have to redo their factories, rework their labor contracts, redo their software stack, change their distribution network. They have to start to adopt a more nimble, profitable playbook. And so I agree, margins go down, bad for the business. My bet is a year, two, five years from now, we're going to be talking about big traditional auto that is going to be a fraction of the size that they are today. Just look at what's happening with Toyota today. I think it is uh, a tale of what's to come. Gene, Danny Moses here. Um, the only reason I totally agree with you that the only reason to own the stock here is that you think that in the out years, all these things will, will come to fruition as far as market share and being able to produce these, these many cars. But to Dan's point, it hasn't, been a, it hasn't been a supply problem. It was a demand problem, at least near term, cutting price to do that. Until I see these things which have been promised for years, FSD at the right level, whatever level that would be, or all these other things that are supposed to be on the come, I still see it as an auto company. Maybe that's naive. And I'm still trying to figure out how we got we went from $110 per share here to kind of 280 to 290 on what has been happening. Yes, there's AI. It's always been a part of Tesla. AI has been. So I'm trying to figure out why, where were all the screaming bulls, because it feels like they kind of went away when stock was drifting below 150. What is the reason the stock you think has rallied here from 105, let's say, to you know 290? I think it's an understanding that uh, that they are recapturing it, that sales dipped and they've rebounded. The March, the June quarter deliveries up 83% year over year. The overall EV industry up 50%. I mean, they had a great June quarter, and I think that's part of the reason why you had the rebound here. But I want, I want to see the the Tesla bear bull debate is great. I I love the 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 uh, the topic. I think. Ultimately, let's uh, just quickly base it on a, maybe an agreement or uh, we'll share something. Our electric car is going to be the future. And I would guess that most of uh, the, the desks there would say electric cars will be the future. I'm okay if demand slips for a quarter or two or four quarters because the end point is clear in my mind. Gas cars are going away. And ultimately, I think that is that what is most optimistic is the other players that are trying to grab this massive TAM. It's as big as it gets. The other players, I think, are going to struggle with profitability to get there. So that's why I'm okay. I'm not. There's not like mental gymnastics around Optimus Prime or their solar roof or their lithium refinery that needs for me to get more to think that the stock's going higher. This is just very simple. The world's going to electric. Tesla has a competitive advantage around profitability. If you don't get profitable with traditional auto, they got problems, and I think that's the opportunity. Gene, thanks for playing. Gene Munster, Deepwater Asset Management. Uh, is it possible that it's simply a process of elimination? Gas cars will be gone. Electric cars are the future. Who's going to win? Is it going to be GM? Is it going to be Ford? Look at Ford. They're cutting price because no demand. There's not a problem with demand. I mean, there is a problem with demand. There's not a problem with supply here. There are a lot of other auto companies which are going to be producing EVs, which are coming onto the market right now. I go back to what drove the stock higher. I think about their charging stations, right? They're going to open those up to other, it's 50 cents maybe in 2032. I just think incrementally we're in a market right now and Tesla's one of the magnificent seven, as we call it, that's getting the benefit of the doubt in, in, all, in all aspects. And I think it's kind of fed on itself. And I'm not short a lot here because again, it's not trading on fundamentals in my opinion, it's trading on the out years and the 
promises. Last time we had Phil LeBeau on, we asked him the question about margins. You know, it's that Wells Fargo note. And so the bull case is this will be the trough quarter for margins, right. or at least a quarter or two away. And that's when you buy the stock. And then the bear case is margins are going to continue to deteriorate. So you go from 17.5 to 16% margins, then it's a whole different paradigm, I think, for the stock. So if you're bullish, this is a trough margins. If you're bearish, it's get worse from here. And I listen, I'm not an expert in the stock, but I think given the run you have, it's very hard to make a continued bull case given the run that we've seen listen, over the last few months. There's clearly a demand problem. You know, Gene just mentioned that EVs in the first half of this year were up 50% year over year. You know what they were up last year? 71% year over year. So that growth rate is actually declining. And when you think about, okay, ramping Giga Berlin, well, I don't know about you guys, but Europe's in a bit of a recession. China is dealing with a deflationary like environment right now. And Shanghai is a large part, I think, of the valuation off of the lows you know, that started in January when, when basically the Chinese did an about face on zero COVID. And I don't think China's much better. So to me, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't get it here, and I've been on the other side of this. Um, I had it right on margins into the Q1 print, and I think if you're willing, if you're new to the story, I think there's probably a good trade right here in and around 290 for the same reason. I think they print 17%, and whatever they say, I think you want to discount whatever they have to say about margins dropping in the back half of the year. It's not to say that fundamentals will matter, but what is the right multiple to pay on a company that has declining margins, might be growing rapidly, but is incredibly capital intensive? Because at the end of the day, that's what this business is, capital intensive. So at 70 times earnings where it is today, the valuation has never really mattered. But at some point, once it hits that rate of maturity, growth rates decline, valuation will matter. Coming up, Microsoft closing out on Apple's market cap as the company's latest AI news sends shares to an all-time high. The details on its new subscription service and how much it could mean for the stock. Next, more Fast Money in Two. We've got a market flash on Oddity Tech, the direct-to-consumer name uh, just making, uh, pricing its IPO. Pippa Stevens got the details. Pippa. Hey, Melissa. Well, Oddity pricing above expectations at $35 per share, according to the Wall Street Journal citing sources. Just yesterday, the company raised its target to between $32 and $34 per share, up from initial expectations of $27 to $30. The company will start trading tomorrow under the ticker ODD. Melissa. Pippa, thank you. Pippa Stevens. Meantime, Microsoft topping the tape. The tech giant marking a fresh all-time high today after unveiling a subscription service for generative AI tools. Enterprise users will pay 30 bucks a month to use the AI-enhanced Microsoft 365 programs. Microsoft's market cap closing in on Apple, now standing at just under $2.7 trillion. Dan was making the point earlier, it's adding all this market cap. We don't know how much it's going to cost off of these services versus the revenue they receive, but it is recurring. It's not a one-off spend by customers. It would, would be a recurring subscription stream. Remember back in the day, IBM got that premium valuation because they had a recurring revenue stream. They had visibility. The market said, that's great. This is great as well. But how much you want? Right now, given the close, I think Microsoft is trading close to 32 and a half, 33 times next year's numbers. They report on the 25th, and I've said it on the show 50 times. It's one of the five most important companies in the world. We've been bearish. We've been bullish. But at these levels, you have to question the valuation. And go back and look at the last couple quarters. They were fine, but they weren't fine by Microsoft standards. And they don't justify, again, my opinion, a 33 multiple. Too expensive, Cameron? 
it does price in a lot of good news and growth. And we are back to the pre-pandemic or the actually the pandemic era peak. So back to that 2021 level, which as we talked at the top of the show was a very different environment. So you have to see the earnings materialize. You cannot see just sort of mediocre growth. It really does have to knock the lights out in order to justify the valuation. Coming up, game over for GameStop by one of our traders here calls this the ultimate meme stock and is still playing it from the short side. More on the meme mania right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. One of the hottest stocks with retail traders over the past few years is also catching one of our traders' eyes, but not in a good way. GameStop is up 25% this year, but down more than 6% since Ryan Cohn was elevated to executive chairman on June 7th. Dan, even trading around it right now, you have a small short position. Put option. Yep. Put out, okay. So walk. I don't want to be walk. taken out, obviously, like yeah. some other funds have. But it was the making of the meme king, mm-hmm. that you, your, your documentary, that really got me thinking about it again. I watched it the other day. But when I think about this name in general, through all the iterations of what we saw during COVID and all the meme stock trading, it is, it is the quintessential meme stock. And Ryan Cohen has a lot of money. Ryan Cohen has an ego. Fine. That, that's all good. And he puts his money where his mouth is. He said as much. So this last quarter, when the CEO resigned and there was no conference call at all, he went and bought $10 million worth of stock at around $22.50 on average. I would say he's a bad trader because I think he could have bought it much lower, 15, 16, 17. There was also two other board members that bought five and 10,000 shares, you know, you know, respectively. There's a history to this. Back in March of 2022, after a disastrous quarter, he bought, what, $10 million worth of stock right around the same level split adjusted, so call it $24. So, this company has 1.2 billion or so in cash, right? They're not making money. They're probably going to lose money here for the rest of the year. And I don't know a company with a 7 billion market cap that looks like this other than the faith in Ryan Cohen. And listen, he wants to keep buying stock. Great. But it's just not something that, that I would own at this point. All right. Let's get the options action here. Uh, check in with Mike Coe. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, I mean, GameStop has actually remained one of the busier single stock options, even though it is certainly not one of the bigger companies as traded as Danny was just alluding to. Uh, We've pretty consistently seen calls outpacing puts over the course of the last 20 days. That was true again today. Calls outpacing puts by about 3.6 to 1. Uh, The busiest options were the weekly uh, 24 strike calls. And we also saw some buyers of those calls that expire at the end of next week, paying 65 cents those. But I would say that what Danny's doing buying puts is probably as good a price as we've seen. Implied volatility, that's the price of options, is essentially bouncing around at four-year lows right now. Thanks, Mike. For more options action, tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can see the meme king. Oh, stop it. Uh-huh. It's streaming on Peacock. It's also on YouTube. So there it is. catch it. Um, up next, final trades. For the final trade, Cameron Dawson. XLE, the last shall be first. Danny Moses. Long Sprott Physical Gold Trust, PHYS. Dan. Uh, yeah, yields. I think they go lower, long TLT. Got I watched you talk so many times, Matt. I love them. So, so good. <laughs> Devin Energy, DVN. Flattery is everything. No, just <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. 
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.